The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. <laughs> and Don is giggling like a schoolgirl because tonight we have an extra special guest. Larry Houston, um, director and producer of X-Men the Animated Series, has joined us to talk about his career, the X-Men obviously, and the animation industry. Welcome to the show, Larry. Hey, thanks for inviting me. All right, so I think we should probably just start with the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, Larry? Like, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, South Central Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Grew up with a single mom. You know, mom and dad kind of broke up early, so I pretty much was raised by my mom. Mm -hmm. And um, pretty much she moved a lot. And so I I was connecting, disconnecting with friends at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And so... The one thing consistent for me at that time was television and comic books. Right. And um, I got a chance. That's one thing that was consistent for me back in the 60s. I'm a little bit older than you guys. Right. And um, so that's how I started uh, learning, you know, how to tell stories and um, and, and get involved with, with comic books and, and the drawing and stuff. The first show I remember as a kid, though, Mm-hmm. Growing up was a show called Astro Boy, mm-hmm. mm. and it really it really caught my imagination. This little kid robot flying around and doing things, and um, I used to go to school, and I think I'm talking about elementary school, and I would be drawing mm. pictures of it, and my classmates were like, "Wow, what's what's that?" And you know, it's kind of nice to get some a response. Hey, I draw this, and I got attention, so let me keep doing it. And it <laughs> it just just kind of grew from that point forward. Fast forward to about in high school, mm-hmm. art class was pretty fun for me to go go into. Mm-hmm. But the, I had also met other uh, artists who was in the class that had similar uh, interests as I did, and we would all make up our own, like my version of the X Men, my version of the Avengers, and we would all make up our own little comic books in high school, and we would draw it for ourselves for our own enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And we'd show it to each other and read and critique and just have fun. And, you know, at the same time, you know, buying all the, you know, buying the Marvel books that were out at the time mm-hmm. and using that to, uh, you know, fuel our imagination, so to speak. Right, right. And when I got out of high school, I actually wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I, I liked sci- I liked science, I liked art. Mm-hmm. And uh, my first job actually was, I got a scholarship to go to con- a company called Control Data Institute, mm-hmm. oh. where you would where you would learn how to fix computers. So I, mm-hmm. I I took the class, and I got hired the first week when I graduated. And so for me, I I worked for a lot of the companies like GTE, mm-hmm. Digital, Data General, and my last job was actually at McDonnell Douglas, working as a, a systems analyst. 
And I kind of did that for like seven years, mm-hmm. right out of mm-hmm. high school. Right. But, wow. but the thing is, is that as I'm working on the computers, I'm always still drawing comic books. I'm drawing pictures when the computers don't running tests. I'm still buying books. I'm, I'm still playing around with ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, my friends, uh, Will Minio and um, Mark Evanier, had moved on to working at Hanna-Barbera. I think Will was working on Godzilla or something like that, or Jan of the Jungle, one of those shows. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we had all met in the 70s, not physically in person, but we did a lot of fanzine stuff. Right. Huh. Where I would do covers, he'd do stuff, and we would just exchange, you know, this pre-internet. <laughs> we actually, you know, now you guys call it snail mail, but that was our only means of communication back then, was just write and wait, wait a week and maybe get a response from you, from whomever. Mm-hmm. They told me back then you could, um, they were telling me, you know, I, you, know you, should, you should go go to Hanna Barbera or go to a Filmation or go to one of the studios and try and get hired because back then you could get hired for, you might be work for nine months and take, they, can't, they let you go for three or four months and you get hired back again. So they had a mm-hmm. seasonal hiring and firing mm. back then. And I was just, for a long time, I was just very, uh, just just not sure of myself, I guess. Right. And and um, this, uh, I'm, I'm like 24 years old, and I have this epiphany saying like, man, I don't want to be an old man of 30 years old and haven't even tried it. So <laughs> I, I um, in my brain, my poor brain, I just told myself, look, I got to give it a shot. I'm not married. Don't have kids. I got to try something. So I, um, I... I did something I usually tell kids not to do anymore. Right. But what right. I did was I quit one job and then went looking for another job, oh. which is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. But anyway, at the time, I didn't know any better, and I quit my systems analyst job from McDonnell Douglas. I went out to go look for a job over at um, it was a company called Filmation. Mm-hmm. And I had heard that there were people that they were looking for uh, storyboard artists. But I didn't know, you know, I actually didn't know what a storyboard artist was. So I went to, there was a supervisor named Herb Hazeltine, and he was in charge of layouts. And so I went there to take a test in layouts. And I took the test twice and failed it twice. Oh. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is the stupidest idea I ever made. Why did I quit my job? But on the last time when I went in for the interview, uh, the comic book pages I had drawn us in high school mm-hmm. where I was like telling my own stories. He saw some of that in my portfolio and he said, you know, you, you probably are better off trying to be, to be a storyboard artist. In my head, I was going, what the hell is a storyboard artist? <laughs> mm-hmm. I had no idea. I was, cause I was in my brain. I was always thinking I got to work for Marvel. I got to work for, for DC. I got to work, you know, I was thinking comic books all the time. Right. And so he took me upstairs to the head of storyboard, which was Don Christensen at the time. And, and I know Will was working at the time, but I went to Don. He was in charge of everybody. And I uh, got introduced by Herb to him, to Don. And mm-hmm. Don, there was a show going on at the studio called um, Sport Billy. Right. And he gave me a page of the script. He said, well, take this, see what you can do with it. So he gave me the page, gave me some model sheets. And I read the little what what it was. It didn't seem to be that hard. I went home and drew it, 
mm-hmm. brought it back next day. He was surprised. He said, you're done? I'm going, well, yeah, here it is. And he took a look at it. And even though it was like needed some refinements, he liked mm-hmm. the angles I did and some of the, and what I had drawn. And he actually took what I drew and put it into the show and hired me that day. Wow. Huh. And so from that day, it was in February of 1980. Mm-hmm. That's when I got hired at Filmation. I've been in animation ever since. Hmm. But what I tell kids, don't quit a job. <laughs> right. <laughs> I say you have a job, and then you quit the first one. But you don't. I did an ass backwards, and I was like, I was, I was young and stupid. I, I, what, what else can I say? Right. Um, so, so you entered the animation industry in 1980. Um, yes. But I see you're on your like uh, your background listing in that that you were already a story director on Thunder the Barbarian in 81. Is that correct? Yeah, I was, uh, at the time, I was, um, there was a need, I think we'll mention it, back in the 80s, mm-hmm. there was so much work out there, they were looking for bodies everywhere. Right. And in 1981, I had, well, 1980, I got into business, 1981, mm-hmm. I left Filmation, and I got hired by, by Stan Lee to work at Marvel Productions. Right. And so I was working for, working there with uh, Stan and Art Patello, he's the actual director who hired me. Mm-hmm. but the people at uh, Ruby Spears were looking for people to work on adventure shows. Mm-hmm. And so I was working at Marvel Productions during the day and then working at Thunder at night. I was Yikes. kind of doing double duty, you know. It's kind of like, I'm 25 years old. I don't have a life, you know. Just draw <laughs> like crazy. Right. Well, yeah, Will mentioned doing the same kind of thing back in those days. So I guess that must have been pretty common. Yeah. Uh, there was like so much work and people were looking, especially adventure shows were like really, you know, picking up the pace and they wanted people that could draw superheroes and, or heroic mm-hmm. adventures. And so mm-hmm. I got, you know, I got, I started picking up work from my day job and my night job. I worked oh, on right. a lot of different shows. <laughs> yeah. That, wow. Um, when did you have time to sleep? Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> a good question. You know, I just, uh, Back then, I was like young and and full of energy, and you just, you know, you just, I don't know, it just came to you. You could just draw all day, mm-hmm. draw daytime, draw nighttime, and just, you know, go to sleep, wake up. It was just like, it was kind of like a dream job because I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I was actually working at a place that they were paying me to draw something I would do anyway, and yeah. it was just like, wow, I'm drawing this, I'm drawing that, and. The plus part about working at on on Thunder was that um, mm-hmm. Jack Kirby and Gil Kane would would come in because they were doing model sheets and for the different shows, and so you got a chance to not only work on Thunder, but you got and, and I didn't see Alex Toth, but I see some of his model sheets and Jack, and mm-hmm. they were like I knew who they were, and these mm-hmm. are like you know comic book gods, and it was like oh my god, Jack, how you doing? Oh, Gil Kane, you know, it's like that was all, that was so much fun back then. Yeah, that would have been. I mean, the year, the year before, you just literally found yourself working with Stan Lee, who, of course, is a legend himself. And then the next next year, you're working with uh, Gil Kane and um, and Jack Kirby. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, hmm. it was like it was like a fantasy come true because it's like, you know, I could never, you know, I couldn't get to Marvel. I'm took back in New York to work for any comic books, but here I am working in Los Angeles and uh, in Hollywood, and I'm doing storyboards and I'm meeting my idols in front of me yeah. and I can talk to them and mm-hmm. 
they're talking wow. back to me. <laughs> a lot yeah, Marvel of Marvel came to you. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was great. So yeah, so that's what happened. I worked at Marvel from like 1981 to about 1989. Right. And uh, basically, a lot of I started. It was myself, Will Minio, Rick Holberg, and Russ Heath, and we were all working on almost everything Marvel was doing from that point for about nine years. So any any kind of toy that Hasbro had in their you know store. Right. Well, basically, TV shows of it. I know. I was going to say, so they would literally just walk in here, some model sheets, or or would they give you the toys and say, okay, make model sheets of this? Uh, yeah, they would give model sheets to the designers, which were um, Rick and Will and mm-hmm. Russ Heath. And they, that's not my forte. If you remember, right. I I tried doing that, and I failed that test twice at Filmation. So that right. wasn't my, okay. <laughs> that was not my calling. So they would take all the stuff and turn it into model sheets on the adventure stuff. They had other people doing the comedy stuff, right? But they were the the main guys who did all the adventure shows. Wow. Because going through this, like at that same time you were doing that for Marvel, you were working for a lot of other companies too. Yep. I um one show that came came about was um there was a show called uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that came around. Mm-hmm. And, I think I've uh, heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, and they they came and needed a storyboard artist to work on. I think they did either one. I think I'm not sure if it's one or two miniseries, but I worked on both of those as a storyboard mm-hmm. artist. And then when they got the green light to do 65 of them episodes, um, actually, I did about. I think they did. It was on the air for God, four years. They did. They did a total of 169 episodes. Mm-hmm. And I worked on 118 of them. <laughs> wow! It was all working at home. Yeah, you know. Huh. So I'm, I have a, I had a day job and a night job, just mm-hmm. drawing and like crazy, and it was a lot of fun. I'll bet. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they had yeah they had other freelance shows I was working on, which was um, let's see if I can remember. I, I sometimes I got to go to IMDb and look at what what the hell I worked on. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> But uh, there's things like Thundar, Galtar, mm-hmm. Mr. T, um, God, um, I'm not sure what else. Oh, I'm trying to remember it. It's a yeah, whole bunch of. Ghostbusters? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the Ghostbusters also. Um, Heathcliff. Heathcliff, yeah. Um, cops. Yep. Yep. And um, I did some. Somewhere in there, yeah, I did. Uh, TMS tried to get up, tried to. Uh, Establish a studio, mm-hmm. um, and they did two shows. One was called Bionic Six, right. right, and the other one was called The Mighty Orbots. I was doing those at night, you know, working on those shows. Holy at the smokes. same time, we were doing um, uh, GI Joe, Transformers, mm-hmm. Bigfoot, Inhumanoids. Um, God, what else is out there? That's all I can remember. I know yeah. the all oh, Defenders yeah. of the Earth. That's right, Defenders oh. of the Earth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you. I, I can imagine you probably don't have a lot of memories of this stuff because you were literally just too busy just cranking out storyboards to, to actually be aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a blur because kind of like the thing that happened in age, you guys pro- probably already know this, but mm. uh, network television was so restrictive that you couldn't do anything. I was When we were at Filmation, the show I was working on was um, the Lone Ranger Tarzan mm-hmm. Hour, and uh, what's hap- what happened on that show 
was that you could you got Lone Ranger with a gun, mm-hmm. right. and you got Tonto with a bow and arrow. They couldn't shoot anybody. They can't. They couldn't <laughs> do anything. Mm. They couldn't even punch someone because of the restrictions on really. You know, broadcast. No, you couldn't do anything. So it was things like if the bad guy was coming at at the good guy, the good guy had to step aside. The bad guy would go through frame, mm-hmm. and then the frame would shake, and then you mm-hmm. cut to the bad guy in some in some weird position where like he ran into a wall or something. <laughs> right. But. Or the Lone Ranger would take a gun and shoot a chandelier. Chandelier yeah. would fall. You wouldn't see an impact. And then mm-hmm. you cut to the guy, and the chandelier's, you know, he's, he's caught inside the chandelier. <laughs> and, uh, but that was like the, that was the extent of adventure shows in the, in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And so what happened was when He-Man came out, they created uh, uh, the, the syndication market. Mm-hmm. They blew up, and they created this marketplace that, because they, they were a huge success, mm-hmm. and also because they're syndicated, they didn't have to follow the syndicate. They didn't have to follow the network rules. Uh-huh. So you could actually do a normal adventure show that, unfortunately, some people call were violent, but mm-hmm. they were just regular adventure shows. So that's what mm-hmm. that's what set the pace for creating um, the Ninja Turtles, the G.I. Joes, the Transformers, all that, all that stuff became into being because of He-Man was a trailblazer. Right. And so yeah. that was in the idea of, of uh, being able to draw a superhero punching a, a supervillain. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, it was, so, it was like so much fun to draw because we had so <laughs> much restrictions before. It was like, it, yeah. So it was like it was, yeah, the 80s were a great time. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, because I'd I'd heard somewhere that um when they started the uh, GI Joe uh, Real American Hero, one of the things that got people on board was the idea that you could actually punch somebody on it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it should it shouldn't have excited you when you were working as an artist back then, but when you actually saw a superhero character punch another character and he fall down, it was like, oh my god, we can do that! Oh great, you know. You know, you see it all the time in the comic books, you know, Kirby, mm-hmm. you know, the thing punching someone or Spider-Man punching someone or the Hulk smashing something. And I was like, wow, we can get, the, we can do that now. It just opened up our imaginations and our enthusiasm mm-hmm. to just cut loose, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Although, uh, G.I. Joe, you still couldn't actually shoot anyone. That's true. That was... Uh, <laughs> That that we kind of played the the logic of the board artists at the time. We just we played it like okay, this is the A team. Right. They shoot things, they blow things up. Nobody really dies, and so mm-hmm. we just played it off and said, you know, also this is for young kids, so we really right. can't have. We couldn't even have flesh wounds. It was just like no, they just shoot and don't hit it. Again, they couldn't shoot straight. Right. Yeah. And it just, <laughs> shoot here, shoot. You know, you blow up a the bad guy's jet. And you have parachutes, you know, the guys of jump course, out yep. so they're, they're yeah. not dead or anything. You know, unless you clearly establish, like, they're being flown by robots, mm-hmm. you always have to have parachutes all huh. the time. Right. <laughs> now, that was something that came from the producers, that they said, nope, that we've always got to show that we've always got to show that they survive? It was kind of a leftover from us working in network television, knowing that, okay, if these shows ever get 
shown on the networks in the future. Right. We need mm-hmm. to accommodate some of the uh, restrictions right. that they put on us. So say, okay, we won't show, you won't blow up a jet and then, yeah, he's dead. No, we'll show. Right. So we, we added those little things to it because mm-hmm. of that consideration. Right. Now, was, was there a lot of, um, I know, because I've, I've heard different stories about, about the time, but was there a lot of outside influence, like outside of the animation industry and the network to tone that kind of thing down? Or There were attempts. Uh, there was a lady named Peggy Charon who was in charge of the uh, Action for Children's Television who, she was always active. She was like one of the main instigators in the 70s to clamped down on what she said called quote-unquote violent cartoons mm-hmm. but once we got into the syndication market uh she had she could yell and scream but basically it was syndication market so she had very little effect on right. what we were doing and also at the time um the only thing the only thing that um restriction i from what i remember was you know if you had a gi joe show you really can't show gi joe commercials Mm-hmm. Oh, but okay. but you could show Transformer commercials in GI Joe. <laughs> you could show GI Joe commercials in Transformers, but not in the body of the same show. Mm-hmm. Right. That that makes sense. I remember that as a kid. That yeah, yeah. they would show the Transformers commercials during GI Joe and vice versa because they always played together. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So that that obviously it helped uh, the toy company because they were able to promote their their toy. I mean, I, you know we. We knew, everybody knew it was a toy, but we, when we were working on the show as a creative uh, artist and writer, um, we were trying to create content, you know, that would be yeah. entertaining for the audience, and um, just trying to make, at least in my case, what I tried to do is I tried to remember mm-hmm. what it would be like or what it was like to uh, be a kid and watch these shows, mm-hmm. and I tried to put into the shows things that made me get excited about about it and so I tried to always add that element to the shows I was working on so that I didn't want to write down to the kids I just wanted to get them excited about what I'm working on so that mm-hmm. uh, they could be as, as enthusiastic as I, as I was when I was younger hmm. and so I think a lot of there were a lot of us who were doing that so yeah. I could see it because that's what I, I I remember that uh as a kid, even an, as a teenager, there was a lot of shows that you just had these like crazy ideas that everybody would run with. <laughs> yes, there there are a lot of shows that I don't. I kind of have a vague memory of of that. Um, there are things called like the Spiral Zone. There's oh, Visionary. Yep. There's yeah. Air Raiders. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch of toy concepts that got turned into we tried to turn it into uh you know dramatic series mm-hmm. and uh you know stuff like that yeah where we're every time we tried to uh, I sh- we tried to um you know sh- you know kick it up a notch mm-hmm. just right, don't yeah. write stupid stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah because well, um so I, let me just ask there must have been some shows though or some you know properties that you were you know that when they handed you the you know the design sheets or when they handed you it's like we're going to work on this now you must have thought oh my god no <laughs> or yeah or, yeah i had yeah there's some of those why well, you did it for the money you need some money this week so <laughs> you gotta, yeah. 
<laughs> he took the job and said, okay, fine. Because uh, I remember working on shows like Pac-Man and Rubik's Cube, oh, Turbo God. Team. <laughs> oh, God. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I just need, it's like, I just needed some money. Okay, fine, I'll draw it. Yeah. <laughs> got bills, got to, got to pay them. <laughs> yep, it's just the way it's going to be. Yep. Yeah, there were some shows, some not shows, but other freelance projects I got to work on, which were kind of fun. I, Heyman mm-hmm. uh, at the time was they want they needed some in the in the t- toy packaging in, mm-hmm. in the '80s. They had these little mini comic books that were behind the figure that came right. with the toys. Mm-hmm. The He-Man, and I drew those. I drew about ten of those oh. at at home. I that was my extra job. I did. He-Man comic books. I did um, work at Roy Thomas on um, okay. Uh, well, All Star Squadron. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, work with Will on his DNA agents, and right. um, another guy named uh, Dennis Maloney from Heroic Publishing. I did a mm-hmm. couple of character he character called Flair. I did a couple of backups for him on that show. Oh, okay. Uh, not show. I'm sorry. Comic book. Comic book. Right. Yeah. So did you ever actually manage to bring any of your own comic book creations to life? Um, not to animation life, but I did one. Uh, I did a book for Charlton Comics called The Vanguard. And okay. it was, a, it was a pretty much a one-shot. And it was a, it was a book about these uh, uh, three freedom-fighting girls who were the, the brother of one of the girls, you know, killed the father, blamed the girl, his sister for the... Or uh, the murder, mm-hmm. she goes away. She she discovers she finds some other freedom fighters. They join up, and they go back to attack her brother to stop him from starting any new wars. Hmm. And uh, that was the premise behind it. And hmm. everybody's got superpowers, so it's like a lot of stuff. Um, one girl, I, they were called um, so, let's see, Celestra, Cerebra, and Corona. Mm-hmm. And hmm. Celestra had the electrical powers. Cerebra had the mental powers, and, and uh, Corona had, she flew in a ball of fire. Right. She, that's why she called herself uh, Corona. So that's that was one that I, I did that got published back in 80, oh, God, that's right, 81, yeah. Hmm. Back in 81, I was, I was pretty busy back then. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say so. Um, so, yeah, I... I it, it, it was a crazy time between them, the ages when I was like 25 to about 35. I was like drawing like crazy, doing doing different work. Well, yeah, you and you can do that at that age. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, uh, it was about the – I know I started slowing down mm-hmm. a little bit when I got to be about 30 because that's when I got married. Right, so, of course. That, that took a big chunk of time away from freelancing <laughs> right there. <laughs> Right. So about what, what projects were you working on around the time you got married then? Uh, let's see. That would have been... Um... Oh, wait. That's right. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, that would have been near the end of... Somewhere in the middle of Marvel. Uh, near right. the end when we were working on the Defenders. I think that's what it would, be, would have been, yeah. Right. Defenders. Mm-hmm. So yeah, slowed down, and then also about '89, the company, uh, Marvel mm-hmm. Productions at the time, just it folded. So it just it mm-hmm. actually went away. So right, yeah. 
that was a good time for that to happen too. Right. Uh, yeah. so, so that would explain why around that time you ended up in the, doing like the real Ghostbusters and you worked on Cops for a while. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was a low period, so I got a chance to do that. And after Cops, um, I think Will was working there on. He got the job of working on a Ghostbusters, and then mm-hmm. he got me some work on Ghostbusters, working with him. And right. then I worked on, and then from there I got a chance to uh, be the producer director of. Mm-hmm. They did the Karate Kid, so mm-hmm. I was put in charge of that show. It was a one season show. Right. And and then after that, I hooked up with Will again, and mm-hmm. we were doing um, Captain Planet together. Right. Hmm. So I was the, he was a supervising director. I was the director on season one of Captain Planet. That oh. must have been an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, it was, because it was like we were working with uh, Will, working with uh, Ted Turner, of all people. Yeah. <laughs> it, was pretty damn, it was pretty damn tall. And, right. uh, and um, you know, his, his wife, Jane Fonda, I, I, you know, it's like, oh, man. Jane Fonda, how do you, <laughs> I'm shaking right. her hand, I'm, I'm this 30-year-old kid, I'm oh, 32 somewhere up in there, and I'm shaking her, shaking her hand, it's like, wow, right. this is really cool. Huh. So, did, so did Ted actually sit in on, like, like planning meetings and things like that, or did he, did he have very much to do with the show? I only saw him, like, once or twice, and it was mm-hmm. ba- mainly on the first episode to right. see how it was coming together, mm-hmm. and uh, after that... I never saw him again. Maybe Will did, but I never saw him again after that part. But he mm-hmm. was very much involved with the first show to get it off the ground. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, he had his, he was pretty much in charge of everything because it was his concept. So yeah. we just tried to make it as good as we can, mm-hmm. meaning what he wanted it, wanted it to be, you know. Well, yeah, a lot of pressure there, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit. I mean, well, there's going back. Going back though, was there a lot of pressure from like Stan Lee when you were working in the Marvel stuff? I no, I can't say no. Not the same kind of pressure because we all of us are pretty much on the same page. Working mm-hmm. on Spider-Man, Amazing Friends, working on The Incredible Hulk. Um, I you know those are the, those are those properties I knew like the back of my hand. So you know if. Stan came up with a reference of like mm-hmm. yep, the the abomination of the leader is like, hey, I know exactly what you're talking about, or you right. know, you know all, all the relationship, all that trivia. This is the stuff I told my friends. You know, at that time before Marvel Productions, mm-hmm. all of that trivia I learned as a kid, it was absolutely useless in life until I got a job at Marvel. Then right. it was like it was like a pig in a you know, round pig and a round hole, boom, yep. and it all came together. You know, huh? Yeah, I know. I believe it. <laughs> I completely believe that. Huh. Okay. Uh-huh. So, speaking of Marvel, then, so you followed. Um, you let's see. According to this, you followed Captain Plant up with um, X Men: The Animated Series. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, after. Uh, yeah, we. I guess uh, Marvel. With Will and mm-hmm. Eric, and mm-hmm. uh, and the executives from from um, uh, Fox Kids, so one of the cool things about it was that when I, when Will and I, Will, mm-hmm. myself, and Rick Holberg, when we were at Marvel Productions, we had tried to sell the X Men early. When we did the Pride of the X Men, 
mm-hmm. and we had done other presentations, and it, we couldn't get it sold. And mm-hmm. Margaret Lush was our she was our boss at the time. Mm-hmm. Now you fast forward from the eighties to the nineties, she's the boss of Fox mm-hmm. Kids, right. and so she was she wanted to shepherd the show, so she brought in Will, she brought in Eric, she brought in myself, mm-hmm. and we wanted to do the X Men show that we we were trying to sell in the 80s, we wanted to do it in the 90s. Right. And so, uh, yeah, so that's how that, that's how I got hired to be the director in the show. And um, we, back then, um, most shows, like like uh, like my Karate Kid, it only lasted a season, then it's like 13 episodes and you're gone. Mm-hmm. And so when we did the X-Men, we, we figured, okay, we're going to go for broke, Make this the best show we can, right. you know. At the, and at the end of the thirteenth episode, you know, we had our resumes out for whatever the next show mm-hmm. was because we'll just move on. And it was in the middle of post production on the last episode that we found out, wow, it got picked up. I'm going to have oh. work next year, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we did not know. So it, you know, kept going. But um, I made sure that that first season, the first thirteen episodes, mm-hmm. I tried to put put into the show all of the training I had cre- had learned from the 1980s on up right. into that one episode to try and make it as best I could mm-hmm. because I just, I wanted to make, okay, I'm going to, even if it's just one season, I'm going to do my best and put it out there and just, you know, see what happens. Right. And so right. for me, I just, I was, I had a crew of people working for me, artists and, and uh, designers. Mm-hmm that we were also uh, comic book fans. And mm-hmm. so we were bringing, guys would be bringing in their, their X-Men collections when we were needed to get some characters or get some costume designs or um, mm-hmm. ships, spaceships and everything. And mm-hmm. um, we, just, we just made sure the show was accurate to the books because my personal style mm-hmm. is that I, I don't want to change anything unless I have to. Mm-hmm. So as much as possible as I could, I tried to get, we got the books and tried to be as accurate as we could mm-hmm. uh, with the costuming and the look and the stories. And so, um, like there was one episode, if, um, mm-hmm. I think it was called No Mutant is an Island. I, mm-hmm. I, the title might be wrong, but I know it's a, they went to Genosha, where all these right. mutant slaves. Which is a mutant well, island, so that would make sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah but the writers did not know what comic books as well as we did, mm-hmm. as I did. And he would, there were dialogue quotes given to random mutants, but they were called mutant one, two, three, four, five. Right. Because they had no, they really didn't know the mythology that well. And so once mm-hmm. I found out the, the, the sex of, you know, was this a female actor or a male actor that mm-hmm. got that part, then I would go through with the guys and say, okay, let's make this one the blob. Make this one Sunfire. Make this mm-hmm. one uh, Aurora. Make this one North. I went through and um, populated the, the the show with existing Marvel characters. It's like why why create new stuff when you have the entire Marvel characters you can choose from. So I put right, all of those yeah. in the show. Oh, mm-hmm. and so I made sure to populate it as as much as possible. So it, you know, I figure it'll be fun. If I was a kid watching it, I saw. And I saw a character I didn't expect to be in the show, like Thunderbird or somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be real exciting. And so, yeah. 
That's one of the things oh. I did. I just I tried to populate the series of X Men with accuracy, and also I put a I put in what I guess people call today Easter eggs. I called mm-hmm. them cameos back then, but I would drop in characters, other X Men characters, into the show. Mm-hmm. Well, I did it without permission, but what the hell? <laughs> right, I wanted the show to have to be fun, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but I would only put it put them into the show if it didn't affect the story. Right. So it's like, right. you know, like you get a character like Magneto, he starts monologuing about how I'm going to kick your butt, blah blah mm-hmm. blah. Well, you know, and you like there's one episode I think he's talking to the UN and he's just, you know, monologuing, mm-hmm. and instead of just showing, cut to the audience, you know, I cut to different locations around the the Earth, mm-hmm. and you see. You know, you see Shield listening to him, like Shield and 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 War Machine. Then you cut right, to yeah, uh, right. you oh. cut to Sinister listening. And then you cut to Magneto. You cut you you cut to I can't remember the other characters, but basically mm-hmm. I cut you cut around the world to other people listening to what's going on, just so it got just so it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And those characters didn't have any speaking parts, but you know, if you were um, a fan of the books, you instantly knew who that character was. Right. Yeah. 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 But if you're a regular audience, it didn't destroy the story because it's just a guy monologuing about how he's going to do this and do that and stuff. Right. And so I would do things like that to try and uh, keep the visuals interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, makes sense. No, that that actually yeah. that makes and it makes the world much bigger and more interesting for the audience and the characters. Yeah. 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 So yeah, early on when I go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that, no. Sorry, continue. So early on, you what? Early on, uh, in in the X Men series, um, mm-hmm. like we on Fox, I think it was Power Rangers, X Men, Batman, Spider Man. Yeah. At, at yeah. some point, we were all on the same network. Mm-hmm. And in the X Men, I tried to do a cameo, what I described, to put Spider Man like in the background somewhere. Right. And it came back. It came back. No, you can use Spider Man. No, no, I'm going. But it's the same network, you know. Mm-hmm. They they poo pooed that and was like, okay, oh. fine. Right. Um, but what I discovered was that when I did the Genosha Island mm-hmm. thing, and they had these generic mutants, and I made them into existing characters. Mm-hmm. One yeah. thing I discovered was that um, I submitted the characters. You have to submit everything. For approval, right. I submitted the characters through, but I didn't change the name. Mm. Right. If, if the voice actor was Mutant One, this is Mutant One, this is Mutant Two. I never gave the real names. Like I never put Sunfire, I never put Blob, I never put Mystique. Mm-hmm. I just called right. them what what they were in the script. Everything went through. Right. <laughs> because yeah, they the didn't light... know the story as well as you did. Yeah. yeah. No, nope. and that's when the light bulb above my head went bing. I went okay. <laughs> I know what works, what doesn't work. Right. And so from that point forward, I just never called anything what it was. Huh. And that's where all of those cameos came from. I even got Spider-Man in one episode, I think, in the Phoenix Saga. First <laughs> one, where you see um, the top of a chimney, you see a shadow of Spider-Man, and then you see the arm of Spider-Man come in and he goes, Voop, and shoots the webbing. Right. That's right. all huh. it is. And I called that mutant... I think I called it mutant hand, a mutant arm, right. uh, <laughs> so, and it went through. So, so right. that's how I got into the show. Didn't Spider-Man cross over with like the Spider-Man animated series? Didn't it cross over with the X-Men animated series at one point? 
Yep, yep, which was another reason it was driving me crazy is that <laughs> the Spider-Man series was able to do the X-Men in their series, but we couldn't, we couldn't do it in, in, in our series. And I, I think in talking with Will, I think it had to do something the way the contracts were written. Mm. Right. That's the only thing I can think of because there's no reason for us to have the restrictions of not using Spider-Man if Spider-Man can use all of the X-Men characters. Yeah. So that's the only thing I can think of because just, it just blew my mind. Um, yeah. That is so odd. Yeah. Hmm. Well, was was there a lot of like uh, interference with that show like that? or? Um, you know, it was... Um, the, the good part about the X-Men, the year one, was that mm-hmm. there was no expectation. Mm-hmm. And that with a lot of the people who would be interfering with the show. And so when we, we, got, on the, we got our show on the air with a mm-hmm. shoestring budget, I think you guys might have heard how, you know, how little money and how little confidence a lot of people had in the show. Yeah. And so um, because of that, um, you know, there was no toys at the time, too. Right. So they had oh. no, we had no toy interference. We had no creative interference. And pretty much we were left to our own devices. And so Will and myself and Eric, we did the show we wanted to do. And right. I did things without permission because I said, okay, this is going to make the show better. This is going to mm-hmm. do. And I just made decisions on my own to make the show work as the way I wanted to see it. So basically, like, especially season one, that's mm-hmm. my... That was me. I wanted to try and this is the show I wanted to, to look like. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, my the company I was working for, like the way it was set up also is that um, mm-hmm. the company that got the credit for it was Saban. But Saban right. actually, they subcontracted the actual production out to a smaller studio called Garage Entertainment. And that's the mm-hmm. company I was working for. And, um, you know, as long as I didn't upset the Apple cart, so to speak. Right. The people at Graz, hey, cool, just just you know, do do the thirteen episodes because they were doing. They had also another show called Skeleton Warriors and something else going on. So they had several productions at the time. So as long as I didn't create any waves, I, I was good. Everything was good. Hmm. And so it was the luck. I mean, today you can't do it today because there's so many people in the, so many cooks in the kitchen. There's no way. Yeah. Anything we did back there could be done, could be replicated today. Hmm. Wow. Now, you mentioned just before we started recording that you even had to uh, fly to Toronto to fix some of the voice work in that. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, what happened was the very first episode one that we were doing with uh, Night of the Sentinels, um, the recording, after they had picked the, you know, it was a long process of picking the actors to, to play the Jubilee, to play Cyclops and all the other characters. When they got the recording back of the first episode, you know, the network's Fox, uh, they they just went, oh, crap, this is horrible. And and uh, everybody was kind of scared. It's like, we got to fix this. So I got shipped off to Toronto with um, uh, Joe Calamari and the network mm-hmm. guy. And um, to go in there and try and fix things. And basically... You know, it was kind of not, you know, in the end, you know, the end run was that once we figured out what was going on, I was listening. We just, you know, just pull the characters back. Don't make them like sound like everybody's yelling, you know, because then there's no place for the actors, the voice actors to do their acting if everybody's yelling and screaming a lot. 
Right. And so that was basically the easiest solution, but it took a while to get there. But um, <laughs> I remember uh, the what, actor who played Storm was still yelling for most of the series anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they had her. Unfortunately, yeah, that happened too often <laughs> because they had her yelling because they, they, they told the actress, well, you know, there's going to be storm and lightning and thunder, so you're mm. going to have to yell over the sound effects that you're creating. Oh, and, so, okay. and so that's why they had her yelling a lot. And unfortunately, it came across as like she was like, it almost came across as an incantation. I was really not happy about that mm. part of it, but, you know, they were trying to be clear to the audience what she was doing. So she would basically tell them, you know, wind, snow, rain, you know, kind of like uh, billboarding it for the young, younger audiences who are watching right, the yeah. show. Hmm. Uh, so that's where that came from. That was, there were times when I'd had her use her powers, I was able to just cut the dialogue. Mm. <laughs> just, right. just, she doesn't need to talk here, you know. So, um, And that's, that was another providence that I had because if I, I, you know, if it didn't really work well, mm-hmm. I, I just cut the dialogue out. I mean, and <laughs> once you cut the dialogue out, you can't put it back in because you'd have to reanimate the shot. So right. I made sure to make, if I did that, I made sure that I had a reason to do it that I could justify it later on. Mm. But, um, or another thing I would do would be if the sequence that was work that I'm drawing, not, I'm sorry, not that I'm drawing, but the storyboard artist is drawing. Mm-hmm. If it's not working, I would redraw sequences or scenes right. and maybe have them take a piece of dialogue from another show mm-hmm. and put it into there to, to, to cover that scene. It's like oh, the, okay. the beast had this line that he used to say, Oh dear. Right. And so <laughs> I, I would, I would repeat that in different situations. So that'd be like his catchphrase. Right. Uh, something you know. Yeah. It, it was to me. It was like a. It was like a, a holdover of like watching Mrs. Fox say fascinating. You know, I tried to mm-hmm. give him something something to do, and uh, you know, and also um, in his case, we in the season one, um, mm-hmm. the he was kind of relegated to a subplot because we had too many characters to deal with. We had like eight characters, and so right. We put him in jail. We kept him there and stuff like that. But you know that that was one of the techniques I would use to um, huh. right. re- repair some, some of the storyboards. Right? Wasn't there some temptation early on though to get rid of some of the characters? I mean, it is hard to fit eight characters into like a twenty-minute episode. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. Uh, <laughs> and that's unfortunate. That's how come we lost Colossus. That's how come we lost Nightcrawler. That's mm-hmm. how come we lost. We almost lost the beast, but, you know, one of the things that Margaret Lesh, you know, thank God she, she gave us this caveat. She said, look, all the episodes of the X-Men have to have a beginning, a middle, mm-hmm. and an end. But if you want to do a B storyline, an A storyline, a C storyline, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and so the beast was relegated to a B storyline where he was in prison and jail and he was fighting for his rights. And we would right. keep them alive in different episodes until the resolution near the end. Hmm. But um, that gave us um, a way to, uh, I think that comes out to being eight characters. I think we have four four men and four women. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah it's very wieldy. It's a lot of to try and get that in twenty two minutes. It's really hard. I yeah. bet. 
Um, so it was Eric Leewald who was doing the writing on it? Uh, Eric was the story editor, along with Julia okay. Leewald, his wife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have to give big props to those to both of them and the writers that they chose because um, mm-hmm. if I didn't have anything good, you know, if I didn't have a, a script to work from, I, there's no way I could make the shows look as good as they do because right. these guys were giving me something to work with. That's the key, you know. Mm-hmm. And okay, so all I, I to, believe it. all I had to do from that point, having a good script, is just take it and, you know, uh, add to it and make it even better. Mm-hmm. And... Um, one thing I learned over the years from working at Filmation up mm-hmm. into the X-Men is that I got a chance to work in different levels of production mm-hmm. and, and learning, what, learning what the department who do the uh, background colors, people who work on the character colors, people who work on doing slugging, people who do the translations, uh, even the overseas companies. Everybody has a little bitch that they, you know, like – you would listen to them, I would listen to them, and, and they would talk about, if only they would do this, if only they would do that. Mm-hmm. And for me as a director, I kind of, I listened to them, and I would incorporate that into the storyboards I was doing so that when the storyboards would hit each department, mm-hmm. their, their concerns were addressed and it would be in the boards mm-hmm. so that wow. production would move real smoothly through the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, through the, through the, um, yeah, through the through studio, the sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so it just it just made, it made it through with the minimum with the minimum amount of uh, speed bumps, as I call it. Huh. And well, that's the benefit of experience. Yeah, uh, one thing that you'll notice if you go back and watch the X Men, um, they don't they they never walk. That's the one thing I cut out of the X Men, unless they had to. They never walk. I have them um, usually they're in a shot, they're doing the talking, mm-hmm. and if they have to go somewhere, there's a wipe. Right. Cut, or they're there, because uh-huh. um, the the twenty two minutes is very valuable. So I wanted to try and mm-hmm. squeeze in as much story as I could without losing stuff. So that was one of the things I did was just just take out the walking. I mean, there, uh-huh. my friend Bruce Tim. I mean, he was excellent at doing these mood shots and Batman's coming in mm-hmm. with the long shadows, and that was, you know, that was what that scene was supposed to be. But we didn't have that in X Men quite a bit, so we just mm-hmm. I tried I just got rid of the walking. And huh. also talking to the to the overseas in Korea. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna have sometimes it's really hard because they they didn't have a lot of money to work with. Mm-hmm. And if you're gonna take five characters and walk them walk them out of the scene, that's a lot of work for them. And mm-hmm. uh and I thought it was better better paced to um have them work on the action scenes the you know when the people are flying and punching or shooting right. each other <laughs> put the money over there and not over here hmm. and so it helped overseas quite a bit to have production boards that um just went through the system really easy right right so now, that was speaking sorry speaking of um overseas and that how much influence did you get on the way you board and everything from the japanese stuff um the answer to the question would be uh, a lot, because uh, <laughs> back at back at filmation, like when Will Minio and myself were there, mm-hmm. um, that's when we were first getting getting introduced to anime. And uh, for for me, it was like this. There was a director called Hayao Miyazaki, mm-hmm. and he was doing shows like uh, Cagliostro's Castle, Laputa, The Castle in the mm-hmm. Sky, 
And we were like engorging ourselves and like watching this stuff. Cause here's this guy doing uh, these gorgeous films and it's still 2d. Mm-hmm. And we would, Will and I and all the people at Filmation, we would come up. We would actually, there's a place downtown in Los Angeles called Little Tokyo. Mm-hmm. We would go down there. Uh, we would buy these laser discs, which are like, mm-hmm. you know, like a big pizza box, right? Yeah, we would we would have like maybe a two-hour lunch at Filmation. And we would like pop in the, the laser disc and just start watching it over and over again because we, like, we were like fascinated with what was going on. None of us understood what was going on because it was all Japanese stuff. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but uh, we would just take the films and watch it and just, uh, it was just fascinating to get, mm-hmm. to see what they were able to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fast forward when you were talking to me about the X-Men, mm-hmm. I, try, I put as much of that, put as much of that knowledge into that show as I could. Mm-hmm. I did that also with G.I. Joe, putting the right. Japanese approach to, uh, to the G.I. Joe series that I worked on. Yeah. Right. Which, of course, if I recall right, G.I. Joe was being animated in Japan, wasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. it was. And But a lot of the directors here were mm-hmm. from a generation before me. Mm-hmm. And right. so they weren't really into the Japanese style of moving the camera around so we had a little we had some fights there not fight mm-hmm. i shouldn't say fights but we had some um disagreements <laughs> yeah that's a nice yeah we had some disagreements <laughs> but um so, and, and but when it went overseas like mm-hmm. let's there's this like there's a scene like where you uh in gi joe where the plane lands mm-hmm. the front wheel fills the screen mm-hmm. and then turns and then goes mm-hmm. The jet goes into the background. Right. Well, well, the the American directors cut. They just cut when the wheel came into full frame, and then they cut to the to another shot where the jet mm-hmm. comes in. Right. But they didn't take the they didn't take the uh, image off the storyboard. They just threw a light an X through it. Right. But the overseas saw it, what I was trying to do, and they actually put that into the show. And right. so it's like, yay, <laughs> small victories. But it was that kind of stuff that, you know, we kept putting into the show, and, and the Japanese saw it, and it made everything better. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it, was, it was small victories, but it was also our way of trying to um, incorporate some of that anime into mm-hmm. our stuff. Right. I th- and I think it definitely showed. It definitely made it more lively because of the yeah. way you presented it. And uh, you, st- you were combining the best of both worlds, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because there was some of that, too. Like, I remember um, watching, Su- like, Thunder of the Barbarian. One of the things that made it interesting was it wasn't as staged as all the cartoons, like, pr- prior and of its time. That there would be through shots, and there would be shots that would track, like, background to foreground. Yes, we um the the uh, I'm trying to remember the names. I, the, who the guys working on Ruby Spears? They mm-hmm. were also we were all like young kids learning, just getting into anime. We would and we were incorporating a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. into our uh, our style. I guess you could say it. So we we were part of that little revolution 
Right. It would have been Rudy Lavira and Larvira and John Kimball are listed as the directors for Thunder. Right. Uh, but the guys in charge of the studio was uh, Ken Ruby and Joe Spears. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, um, but the so, uh, Dorman, that's right. His name was Dorman. Uh, John Dorman was one of the main guys uh, directing over there. Okay. On 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 Thundar, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that was one of the things that, again, like that that's I think the greatest Saturday morning cartoon ever was Thundar the Barbarian, and that was one of the things that made it interesting was all the weird shots and all the weird like angles and that. Oh yeah, God, it was so much fun to work on. I because mean, like a lot of the the mixture was a design it was a design mixture of you know. Toth and Kirby and Kane, mm-hmm. and you'd have one. I think you'd have one or two, one or two model guys that would try and conform everything into one style for overseas. But mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And the stories are like, it was, you know, it was a apocalyptic world, mm-hmm. and um, you could just you could just draw some freeform. Yeah, it was just yeah, just a lot of fun to draw. Yeah, because there was like. That, that, and, and again, what made it the greatest show ever was you had like wizards and robots and aliens and mutants and yeah, yeah. It was they. I wasn't involved with the writing, but yeah, I, I enjoyed working on it because of all the weird stuff they were putting into it. And it was like, you know, it's like a nice comic book with a lot of mm-hmm. cool designs. And you know, um, Kirby came up with this character that his head rotated or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh. a good face and a bad face. Gemini, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there were a lot, you know, there was a lot of cool stuff in that show. Yeah, so yeah, it was, I, I loved doing freelance on that show, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah. Well, it was one of your first projects as well. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so whenever, whenever Thunder, uh, you know, because they have their own staff on board, mm-hmm. but they can only handle so much. So many. Yeah. Right. But, um, when when you when you would get a script, they gave you. I think back then it maybe gave us four weeks, five weeks to finish one script. Mm-hmm. And um, but you know they'd hand out a script, and then next week there's another script. Wow. So who we're going to hand this off to? So they have to find three more guys to right. do it, and yeah. then after that there's another week. So you got to <laughs> hand out some more, and so until the original staff guys finished they had to keep handing out freelance to everybody else. Mm-hmm, and right. so that's how, you, that's how you would get some work. And, uh, you know, the faster you drew, you know, mm-hmm. more episodes you worked on. Right. Wow. So I can infer then that a big, and just listen to you, that a big part of getting work for a storyboard artist in Hollywood is to be blunt, or Los Angeles, I should say, to be blunt is knowing people. Like, it's, it sounds like a lot of things just come through connections. Yeah, it's a lot of it is connections. A lot of it is uh, relationships. It's a lot of um, uh, being a um, a reliable. At that time, for adventure shows, one thing you had to be obviously draw good adventure shows. I mean, adventure comic books or adventure whatever. But the other thing is that you had to be was um, you had to be reliable right. because. This everything's it's like clockwork. They have to, do, you know, eight. Every this had to be done at a certain time. Then they got to turn it into a 
a timer to the director, get it approved by the networks, get the changes in, um, get it slugged. There were, it, there were like all of these cogs in a wheel, cogs in a machine, sorry, that you just had to be good and you had to be on time. Right. And the other thing I always talk about that I think Will talked about too was that you need to be a, you know, a person, you need don't be a dick. <laughs> you know, just be a nice guy. Turn to the end. You know, just right. You know, just be easy to work with. That's all you had to be. Mm-hmm. With those three things, right? You know, you got work. I mean, that, that that's how it worked back in this back in in the eighties, and it was like mm-hmm. we just had a lot of we had a lot of work. We had a lot of nice guys we were working with, mm-hmm. and the cool part was that unlike today. You know, a lot of the work was still done in the states, so that's how come we had so so much work to work with because it hadn't. Right. The overseas production hadn't had not really kicked in yet. Right. So they were doing as much work here as possible. Right. Yeah, definitely. And that's I assume is also how you got so much work from different companies is you just knew people everywhere at different companies and you had connections, right? It, yeah, it was the connections and also people would recommend you. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I work with Larry on this, I work with Will on this, I work with Rick Holberg on this. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, they'd ask you, like, who, who do you know that's available? Then you give them a name, and they they call, you know, and give you calls all the time. And we were, like, working like crazy. I mean, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I can't do that anymore. I retired last year, but back, oh. in, the, back in the day, yeah, I was just, I don't know how I got any sleep done. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, I can. I, I. I think you probably earned your retirement from the sounds, but you probably earned it twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was. A, it's. It was a. It's a time that I. I talked about with my kids. I told them like I was just extremely lucky, and mm-hmm. right place at the right time with the right friends, um, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I, I mean the X Men for me were like mm-hmm. was like the best show I worked on because it gave me the most creative freedom mm-hmm. to do a show that is exactly the way I wanted to make it make. I wanted it to look like and how I wanted it to sound. And I would, you know, I was allowed to do editing and enhancements and, um, you know, nobody, nobody shot me down. I only got shot down once, which was Spider-Man. After that, it never happened again. <laughs> right. Well, you, you figured out the way around it. Yeah. Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, so, there, you know, there were like, I, I think when we were doing the Phoenix Saga, um, mm-hmm. I made sure the, the guys, when they worked on it too, uh, like I think there's a sequence where the X-Men are fighting the Imperial Guard, I think, on the moon or something. And so I made sure to pull stuff. I think it was John Byrne who drew that. Mm-hmm. I made sure to pull certain scenes from the comic books and put it into the TV show so that you'd actually see maybe certain angles from the comic book actually as an animated scene. You know, um, So if you knew the book, you're going, oh, wow, that's from the book. That's from right. John Byrne, you know. You that know? is so cool. Huh. Took, yeah, we took his ship designs. For the Shi'ar ships and stuff like that, huh. and um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. And um, right, there were. Now, is there anyone you worked with you thought really brought out the best in your work? 
Like, is there anyone that you thought that who you just like you just sync with as a you know working with as a team, like writer, director, whoever? Um, well, the guy that I attribute a lot of my growth as an artist, as a director, and as an mm-hmm. artist was a was the fellow who initially hired me to work at uh, Marvel Productions. Uh, his name is Art Vitello, and. Um, mm-hmm. He hired me away from filmation, which had this incredible stock system where you, you basically you couldn't draw anything. It was like a puzzle you had to put together, you know, like the, the Tarzan left, Tarzan right was like 1A, 1B, stuff like that. And it was more of um, it, it, it was kind of restrictive in terms of um, being a creative person. And when Art invited me to, uh, or not invited me, when he hired me to work on, on, on Spider-Man, they had... It was a syndicated Spider-Man. They needed another 26 episodes drawn to to, to fill out a syndicated uh, um, series. And so he, when I got the chance to work on it, he said, you don't have to use stock. I went, what? No stock? I don't have to reuse stuff over and over again? And that really, that working with art helped me to go back to being an artist again. And and and. I got a chance to uh, do a lot uh, of stuff that was always in my head, but I didn't get a chance. So Art Vitello was like one of the key artists who allowed me to uh, to grow again. Hmm. So he brought out the best of me, I think, when wow. I when I first started. I for me, I, I used a lot of um, the three guys for me that were. Well, I guess it's four. The three, the four people that I liked a lot was Miyazaki, Jack Kirby, John Buscema, and there's an artist, I mean, he's, he's called Andrew Loomis. He's a how to, how to draw the human figure. Those, those are, were my influences growing up in my 20s um, that uh, I attribute to helping me become a better artist. Miyazaki's one of the main ones that helped me become a better director because when I would watch his work, None of us could understand Japanese, but his mm-hmm. stuff was so well storyboarded that mm-hmm. the only thing you didn't understand was the subtext. But you knew right. the yeah. you knew the you knew the big story arc that was going on, and uh, I used that a lot to try and uh, become a better storyteller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, learn from the best, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I, that's where you shoot for. Shoot for the top. <laughs> right. yeah. Definitely. Now, did you ever have a chance to actually meet Miyazaki? No, God, I wish I had. I had a friend of mine named Boyd Kirkland. I was so jealous. He got a chance uh, to. He was one of the directors on Bat on the Bat the Batman animated series. Mm-hmm. And for I'm not sure exactly what he was on vacation. What he got a chance to go to Japan and meet him. Oh, I was so jealous. <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, but yeah, that's the one guy I wish I had met. I mean. I was really impressed by, you know, when I first met Stan, because here's Stan, the guy I read, you know, all of his books, like, since I was in, you know, elementary school in the 60s. Mm. Right. And here I am working with Stan. And, um, you know, a lot of people, the one thing I tell people, people ask me about Stan, and I said, look, there's, when, there's three Stanleys, and uh, there's Peter Parker, Mm -hmm. there's Spider-Man. And as J. Chiro Jameson. Huh. Okay. And, and when he would come to work, 
if he, you know, if he came in a good mood, it's Peter Parker. You can talk to mm-hmm. him. So like I'm talking now, no big deal. Everything's cool. Then there's right. Spider-Man, where, you know, you gotta, you gotta remember, this was like, what now, 40 years ago? He was, he was like, active. He was jumping on tables, showing this is how Spider-Man does this, and this is how his fingers have to attach to the wall, so he's crawling. I mean, he was like, all over the place, full of energy. I was mm-hmm. like, wow. Then there's J. Jonah Jameson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you came to work as J. Jonah Jameson, you knew he was in a bad mood, so you just walked away. Right. <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just wait for, for, you wait for J. Jonah Jameson to go away. But, <laughs> right. but one of the things I told my friends at the time about was that that's why he can write Spider-Man so well because mm-hmm. he's all three of those characters. He can write yeah. Spider-Man dialogue. He can write Peter Parker dialogue. And then he can write J. J-, J- Jonah Jameson dialogue because it's all in his head. He has those mm-hmm. personalities in there. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, I'd never heard it put that way. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Yeah, that's I, good. I was there for like 10 years, so I got a chance to see quite a bit of them. I bet you did. <laughs> I bet you did. Do you still keep in touch with Stan at all? Um. Not recently, no. I think the last time I talked to I think talked to him once last year. But yeah, we stay in touch, but you know, not that much. Right. No, no, I can I can understand. So, Larry, I want to ask you: Are there any shows you worked on that you think that they should either reboot or that people should go back and look at? Like, is there anything that you that you kind of look back proudly on, or and that you think people should pay more attention to? Well, for me, I I um. One show I worked on was called um, uh, RoboCop Alpha Commando because that was kind of fun. I worked on, and I always thought, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to have another shot of that character and maybe uh, have some more fun. It was only it only lasted for one season. I was right. one of the I directed on that. Mm-hmm. The other show would be uh, the Karate Kid, which was another one season thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I was and I've always wanted that character to be at that time to be more like um, Lupin, which was the guy in um, uh, Caliosis Castle, more yeah. high adventure, more high adventure, you know, of the character doing mm-hmm. stuff and jumping around. And that was my approach, but that wasn't the network's approach to the scripts. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I was working on it, I tried to minimize all the dialogue and maximize the um, action to try and keep the, sh- you know, to make the show interesting, but I right. couldn't, I didn't have the authority like I had before in the X-Men, so I couldn't do everything I did before, you know, later on on Karate Kid. Karate Kid came before X-Men, so right, I, yeah. didn't have the, I didn't have the kind of freedom yet to, to do what I wanted. Oh. And um, the third one, let's see, was another one? Oh, believe it or not, I worked on, on the uh, kind of like a, it was called Galtar, which is kind of like a, um, it was kind of like a Thundar ripoff, but it was done at Hanna-Barbera, and... Um, I that was it was actually kind of fun. It was kind of it was kind of like working on Thunder, but not quite. But it was mm-hmm. kind of fun to draw, you know, the guy with the sword and riding the the horses and magic and and science. Mm-hmm. That was fun. You know, I right. thought oh, those three would be fun to revisit again. Right, oh. I can see that. Interesting so choice. About, yeah, interesting choice. Yeah. Now, how about a project that you wish you'd worked on that you didn't get a chance to work on? Was there anything you wish you'd done more of? Or had the chance to work on? Well, because I was working at Marvel, I, I didn't get a chance to work on Legion of Superheroes. 
And that mm. that as a kid was like one of the other series, like like the X Men, that would have been fun to work on. And um, that was probably the one. So I worked with Bruce Timm on Batman in the in season one. So I got a chance to do some Batmans. I got a chance to do some Supermans. Uh, but Legion, I just I, I missed that boat. And that was the one mm. series I thought. You know, I I like that series. That was like in the sixties. That was like um, that was fun. I think it was Kurt Swan and. They had some Jim Shooter scripts where uh, it was just you know it, it was a good it was a good fun series at that time in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, yeah. I would have enjoyed working on that that series if I could have. So I guess right. that's a, that's one that got away. One of the ones that got away. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's... I I got a chance to work on like I grew up in the sixties on a show called uh, Johnny Quest, and as mm-hmm. a kid. They had some really cool episodes. They had really scary episodes. And mm-hmm. fast forward into the late 90s, I think, um, they were doing a, the second season of Johnny Quest, and so I got hired to do the second season with my friend um, Davis Doy, and we did 26 episodes. He did, he did 13, I did 13 um, for syndication packets. And so we got a chance to, the season before us, the guys took Johnny Quest into a, their own direction. They went, made them a lot older or whatever. And when they gave it to us, we said, no, we're going to go back to, to Doug Wildey. And right. so we went back to the Doug Wildey approach and just made them a little bit older, but we tried to keep it just like the Doug Wildey days as much as possible. Right. And that was my other chance to uh, work with writers. Myself, mm-hmm. Davis Doy, we'd have two writers, uh, uh, Lance Falk and uh Leopold, Glenn Leopold, mm-hmm. and we'd go out to lunch, and they would pitch shows to us, and we'd all talk about, yeah, let's do Dr. Zen, or let's do the, no, we can't do, let's do the Daughters of Zen, and we were talking about different things, and we would come up with, like, 13 episodes over lunch, not in one day, but that's how we right. did it, mm-hmm. and so we, we were all contributing to making the show as best we, as best we can, and that was like, um, Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun, you know. Huh. It was a lot of work too because <laughs> we had the the we had an incredible short deadline, so we had to do a lot of work in a short period of time. But it was that even though we had that challenge, knowing that we were going to do a show that was reminiscent of what we grew up with as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of us didn't mind. We we knew we were going to get a a good product out, and we're it's kind of like the first season of X Men. It's like let's just go for it. You know, <laughs> right. Let's just do it. And uh, luckily, everybody yeah. was on the same page. I noticed you keep mentioning the first season of X Men. Is there a reason? Because there were other seasons, right? The show was on for about five seasons, I think it was. Yep. Yeah, I, was, I did the first four seasons. But right. when I say the first, the reason I say that is that um, I mentioned that, is that we never expected anything past season one. Right. And then we got season two, season three, season four. It's like, oh, okay. Right, we're we're doing something right. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so so season one was the season you put all your heart into, basically. Yeah, uh, and there were things in it like the episode thirteen when they're fighting all the Sentinels. It's like mm-hmm. we did like dozens of Sentinels, and then they're fighting Master Mo. Um, in that, like I I resequence dialogue. I read I redid stuff in that sh- in the last episode. 
what was not there when I first read the mm-hmm. script was that when Xavier's flying the Blackbird to try and um, blow up Mastermo, mm-hmm. he just he's talk he says his dialogue, he hits mm-hmm. the um, the the button and then he ejects and then it run it flies into the the robot, right? And that was it. But that's not it didn't feel right. So what I did was um, he he fly he's flying toward Mastermo. Mm-hmm. And as he's talking, you see Magneto fly, hover near him. And mm-hmm. then <clears throat> I show Mastermo shooting out a beam out of the palm of his hand. Because I think mm-hmm. the robot would do something. He's not going to stand there and just get well, blown yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. So Magneto's on top of the ship. He creates a force field that protects the ship from being from the blast. And mm-hmm. then Xavier jumps out of the ship, the robot gets blown up, and then mm-hmm. Xavier is in his parachute, and then Magneto comes up and has a piece of dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. now we're even, next time we meet, you know, whatever it was. But that yeah, piece yeah. Of dialogue, that piece of dialogue was at the beginning of Act 3, not the end. So I moved the dialogue mm-hmm. into a better mm-hmm. place to make the scene work. So there, right. there were things, and that was like, that's some of the vivid things I remember in season one that I did to try and fix stuff the way I think it should have, you know, should have been. So there's a lot of things like, like that I did over the first season to try and like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, you know, I, okay, I know this works better. So I just changed right. without, you know. Right. But so, yeah, as I said, you were putting all your heart into it. You were trying new things. It's just like you figured you only had one shot, so might as well just go for broke. That's it. After one season, okay, if I'm fired, that's fine. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But then you got three more seasons, and you're up and running. Yeah, it was, and the cool part was that I was able to continue that type of, um, not changing the script, just plussing the script. Um, Mm -hmm. There was a show, there was an episode with, um, let's see, Cable and Bishop time traveling. Mm -hmm. And Act 1 was written by one writer, Act two was written by another writer, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and so, but they referenced the same time sequence, and so I had to redraw a good forty-five pages of part two <laughs> to match part one, but with a change because now suddenly Cable's in it mm-hmm. instead of Cable wasn't in it before, which is Bishop, and so I had right. to redraw stuff. So there's a sequence where it goes on for almost like a minute. There's no dialogue. It's all oh, fight mm-hmm. stuff. And I, that stuff I redrew. I made it all up. Hmm. You know. But, you know, so it, it, there was things like that that I, I did to make the show better. There's a there's another episode with um, mm-hmm. Xavier goes kind of nuts. He's talking to Lalandra. And then there's like like an evil version that, he, that comes out of Xavier. And... Mm-hmm. Um, the writer, the, he wrote a sequence where Wolverine cuts the third rail, trying to save an illusion of Jubilee. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't like the idea of showing Wolverine cutting the third rail. So I created an entire sequence of Wolverine inside of a, um, the, uh, the subway car and then running into different illusions. That's when he runs into Sabretooth. That's where he runs into Deadpool. And then he tries to save the illusion of Jubilee, and he almost gets killed by the uh, trolley car. 
Now, again, right. that goes on for about another minute. I made all that up. It wasn't in the hmm. script. Right. Just, just trying to kick it up a bit. Wow. Um, so the, there's, oh, did the writers a, get annoyed by this sometimes, <laughs> that you're going in and you're literally taking sections of their stuff out and putting your own version in? No, pretty much. You know, I was a, at that point, I was, I, won't say I, I was pretty much in charge of all the visuals. And right. so I, I was making the, making the show into the vision I thought was the best. And so I, right. I didn't change any of the words, but I tried to make the scenes better. So I always thought of it as like I'm plussing stuff. I'm not changing anything. I'm trying to make it better. Right. Um, and that was yeah, always my approach. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's more. Yeah. It's like a, a team effort to try and make everything. Mm. We're working on the same team. Let's let's go and let's let's put out the best stuff. And um, I just had to go with my gut instincts in a lot of a lot of cases uh, mm. for making stuff better, knowing the Marvel mythology and bringing all my directing uh, skills to bear on the show. Um, there's something, I'm not sure which Phoenix this is, but there was a sequence where um, there's a character called Gladiator, the guy with that mohawk. Yeah, yeah, he's basically Superman with a blue Superman with a mohawk, yeah. Right. Well, the original script had the characters on top of a castle. They hear mm -hmm. thunder, and Gladiator lands. And it's like, wait, we need to, we need to build this character up so... I, I created a sequence where you, all you see is the guy's fists, and you mm -hmm. see something's approaching the earth. You see a comet coming in. You see fists coming in. You see. Oh, um, I remember that sequence. Yeah. <laughs> I made all that up, you know, because I wanted mm -hmm. to give this. I wanted to set this guy up, and it's like, oh man, what the hell is this? And then when you have, uh, and then I drew the. I personally drew the scene, the Superman versus Hulk scene, where you see Juggernaut punch. Uh, Gladiator, and Gladiator doesn't move. Mm -hmm. mm. I drew that shot, and then have him, I have him pick him up and throw him over the horizon. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, th those That's are the kind awesome. of things I did to try and not change the scene, but to try to, to you know, plus it. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. give the character an entrance, show how powerful this character is, because also by throwing him off the horizon, when Phoenix does the same thing to Gladiator. Now you now you can see the scale of power. Like who's more powerful than who? So, oh, right. That kind of stuff. It's <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that kind of uh, stuff I did over the four years. Uh, I didn't work on the fifth year. That was done by my uh, assistant director. Um, mm -hmm. um, oh crap! I'm losing the name right now. Um, Frank Squalachi was mm -hmm. the director in the fifth season. So he took over after I left. I left to go work at um, New World Pictures to do the second season of the Fantastic Four. Right. And so that's what I, that's, that's where I, oh, I left. Okay. Yeah. So you've actually done some live action storyboarding as well for some actual non-animated projects. Yeah. I got some uh, Captain Power stuff and stuff like that out there. Oh. That was kind of fun. It's a totally different animal because, um, Live action boards mm -hmm. don't require as much choreography as animated shows. So you can mm -hmm. just do setups. And uh, the director is actually going to direct the real actors. Take it, he takes it from there. But you just right. drawing setups for them. Huh. Now, are they doing the storyboards mostly for because of effect sequences? Is that why they're doing them for live action? Uh, in a lot of cases, yeah, because they want to try and um, they want to see what it looks like, how they're going to, and, and try and price it 
Because a lot of times when mm-hmm. you set up the, for oh. an effect shot, they'll take that and take it out to different effect shots. Oh, how much to do this? How much to do this? How much right. work is this? And they'll give them a bid so that, that if, it's, if they need to make adjustments for like a blue screen, green screen, you know, mm-hmm. they'll tell you, okay, I can do the fire in his hand, but you need to put this behind him so I can do a clear mat and, you know, that kind of stuff. They'll give you all the technical right. jargon you need to do the mm-hmm. shot with. But at least if you have something to work from, that's how they can uh, price out the show. Oh. Oh. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good technique. So you said that you've actually retired as of last year. So there's no more projects on the horizon. You're not even going to do freelance anymore. <laughs> no, and I've been called. And it's like, nope, I'm oh. out of it. I am going to relax. Uh, I've had I retired June of last year. It's been a year now. Mm-hmm. And so actually I'm kind of like um, working on some other projects, my own little projects like the Vanguards and stuff like that. Right. And some other some other projects that try and do like like Will's doing, like do some e-books, do some children's books, um, do do some projects like that that uh, I've always wanted to do, but they got put on the shelf because I was working in animation, and now that I'm out of it, I can go back mm-hmm. to having some fun, you know. Hmm. Well, yeah, you've got that freedom, you got that opportunity. Now you can put those skills to work in a new area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So believe me, back when I was in an, in the uh, God, what am I saying? The seventies, mm-hmm. when I was I was working as a I used to do fanzines for myself and working for companies like the Comic Reader, uh, mm-hmm. the Wally Kazawi, uh, Buyer's Guide, and I would just do you know it was just fun stuff. You draw pictures for them and everything, and um, but there was no internet. There was no um, mm-hmm. published. There was no on uh, on print on demand options like you have today. And so mm-hmm. today. God, there's so many ways you can get stuff published. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. That's true. You can just do it all yourself and just get it out there and and the world can the world can find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's that's an, you know, that's what I think Will and I both are gonna try and do. It's like, yeah, do our do our you know, we can do exactly what we want to do and get it out there and just see see what sticks, see what the audience likes, doesn't like, and just um now we can just just have fun and kick back, you know. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's there's kind of two things that um that I'm wondering because I noticed uh, you worked on uh, Spawn. Yes. And I was wondering because there was a um you're familiar with the Japanese stuff and I've always wondered we always seem with our animation here we kind of come up to that line where you could almost start producing like the action stuff the adventure stuff for say an older audience or, or an adult audience, but we never quite seem to get to the point where we can sustain that kind of thing. Right. And I was wondering if, if you had any like thoughts as to why or whether or not we ever could. Oh, that's a good question. I would, um, with spawn, they, you know, it, it was, it was totally different because they wanted us to approach the storytelling, uh, not not in the same conventional patterns that we used to, so we had to think outside the box and how to tell the story. Mm-hmm. I think um, how to do that today, I, you know, it's, I think it's still possible, but I mm-hmm. think it's going to take a, a certain type of creative talent uh, out there. Who It's possible. I think it's quite possible, but it, it's, um, it's finding the... the um, 
the money, the budget, and someone that believes in it that can that can pull it off. It's uh, the key to any of these shows to get them on the air, to get them seen by the public is distribution. I mean, yeah. the one thing that's going good right now is that you have Netflix, you have Amazon Prime, you got YouTube, you got everybody's competing for create for these creative people out there. And if you if they, I noticed one of the things that they're doing is that they're searching for the next Bond. They're looking for the for the next creative team or or showrunner that can pull it off. They yeah. haven't found one yet, but I think they're still looking. So I think it's it is possible. Mm-hmm. But you know, right. so yeah, I think it's I think it's possible. Yes. Cool. Um, yeah. The the other thing I, oh, I wanted to mention was um, I almost forgot. Um, there's a the, I don't know if you guys knew knew about the uh, the GI Joe movie that came uh, out yes. in the late eighties. The opening intro where it's all around the Statue of Liberty. Um, mm-hmm. Back then, um, when we were going to do the movie, um, they asked, I think there were three of us at the time, it was myself, Frank Parr, Boyd Kirkland, to come up with opening titles. Mm-hmm. So we, we had a couple of weeks to draw it, so I went home and I, I drew up the opening titles for that movie where the Cobra's attacking the um, Statue of Liberty and the G.I. Appears and kicks their butt and stuff like that, but I mm, right. I made that all up from from scratch. I just made it up at the time. It was um it was a lot of fun, but the the cool part about it was that when it got animated, I was so mm. impressed because the they actually did everything I I drew. And they actually, <laughs> yeah, it, it was one of those things. Like if you draw something on on a page, like you might have a character do something, and then you have secondary and tertiary act different actions going on at the same time. They usually will ignore everything else and just do the one. Mm-hmm. This one, they drew everything, all the balloons, all the extra characters and stuff. And um, wow. it because it had a theatrical budget, they put right. every they did everything, and it was so nice to see that. <laughs> and I was so impressed. It's like wow, they did it. And uh, so the cool part was that I, I love the opening titles. So mm-hmm. the opening titles and the first fifteen minutes of the movie, where you have a character named Pythona. Uh, going into the build, going into like a terror, I think it's called terror. Terror drone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're called terror drones. Yeah. Yeah, which I did all that. It, I did all of that myself. So the first fifteen oh. minutes and the opening title was was me. It was like, oh, this is cool. This is like, right. <laughs> yeah, because they gave it a theatrical budget, not a TV budget. So it was really nice to see your efforts actually on screen, and <laughs> they actually did what I asked them to do. It was like, wow. Right. And I, I have to say, Larry, that that is probably one of the best animated openings i've ever seen in my life yeah i've always thought that i'm not just saying that i really have believed that since i saw it like in 1986 or so oh thanks man i I was totally blown away and <laughs> and it's like wow yeah and they, they sync the music up perfectly with it and everything and the oh it's just like it's just a beautiful piece of art mm-hmm. yeah well yeah thanks okay it, we, when i drew it i didn't have any music they just said okay the music's going to be Three minutes, four minutes long, so just draw to it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they, I guess they they saw the the images and they just went for it, and I was like, "Wow, this worked out great." But that does that ex- was a lot of fun. I thought I'd mention that yeah. too. Oh, and I got a chance to write <laughs> one GI Joe episode. I did uh-huh. write one. It was called Hearts and Cannon. I wrote one GI okay. Joe episode, and I wrote one uh, Spider Man and Amazing Friends episode called Swarm. Mm-hmm. But I never got credit for it, but I got paid for it. <laughs> it, was, it was where Spider-Man fights a guy made out of bees. 
Oh, okay. okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote that episode. At the time, <laughs> I'm a young kid, 25 years old. What the hell? You know, what the mm-hmm. hell are you doing? You're, so they kind of like let me write the... the I wrote the, 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 the plot. I wrote the outline. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it was taken... It was written by uh, Dennis Marks. But wow. when I saw the finished product, I was like, wait a minute, that's everything <laughs> that I put there. Is, <laughs> I could have wrote this thing myself, but, I, you know, but they paid me for the other right. thing. So. Oh, yeah, still got paid. <laughs> okay, so I think uh, obviously you're, you're pretty happy with your career then, hmm. that you're pretty happy with the way things worked out. Yeah, they're, they're t- I'm very happy. Like I said, I was very lucky. I There's a guy named um, Floyd Norman. He was like the first... Um, black animator over at Disney. I think he worked on The Jungle Book or something like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't find out until about 10 years ago that he told mm-hmm. me for a long time, storyboard, people working in the story department, it was a glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that when I got hired at Filmation in February of 1980, I was the mm-hmm. first black storyboard artist in for Saturday really? morning. Yep. Huh. Yeah, so I, I oh. kind of broke up glass ceiling that I, I didn't even know was there. Wow. I, I, are there, sorry to ask, but are there many black uh, people working in your profession? Yeah, now. But uh, mm. in terms of Saturday morning, I was the first one and, um, mm. in the business. That's fantastic. Yeah, wow. and, but the thing is, I didn't know about that until about 10 years ago when, <laughs> <Right>. when, <laughs> when he told me about it. So I, and I, had to do, I went back into the research and talked to my friends who were there at the time. And uh, mm. there were black artists who were working as an animator. There mm. were black artists who were working at, in layout and character design, but not story. Huh. And so I got a chance. I was the first storyboard artist, black storyboard artist for Saturday morning. Wow. And so it's like I, you know, and I got hired based upon kind of like a meritocracy. The guy liked my work. Right. And mm. I got hired. And I was like, I was just happy to get paid, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> So that was that's something else I could probably add there that was right. Uh, yeah, that, no, that's that's great. Actually, Don, I just remembered something. I, uh-huh. Didn't you want to ask him about Mighty Orbots? Yeah, that was the other. That, that's one of your favorite shows of all time. So, it, yeah, Orbots was a lot of fun to work on, and that was one of the shows when I um, I kind of changed the script, and mm-hmm. that was I didn't have the authority, but uh-huh. it was like there's an opening in Orbots in one of the shows I worked on where. The writer wrote these characters uh, opening the show, and mm-hmm. they're playing chess. Me and they're, I'm going, my God, that's so damn boring. You got characters <laughs> walking around a chess a chess table. So, without asking permission, I started the show off with you're you're flying down this this uh, this tube. You in the mm-hmm. camera comes out, and you see this robot come out and he he does a little couple of flips and then you see another robot and they start fighting each other and they have a couple of they exchange a couple of blows uh-huh. and then you pull back and you see that these are characters on a on a, on a computer chessboard that are being <laughs> right. controlled by care other people you know because mm-hmm. i just didn't want to i just not, not want to draw something as boring as a chess thing <laughs> right. you know a chess game you know, it's an action show you know yeah and so i set that in and um Fast forward maybe about eight or nine months, uh, when I came back to the pick up some work, the director came by. He says, mm-hmm. are you Larry Houston? I'm going, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, what? 
I think they, you know, I, I, what did I do? And he asked me, did you do that sequence with the, with the robots flying out of the chess game? I'm going, yeah. He says, thank you. He shook my hand. Mm-hmm. I was so, <laughs> I, I was speechless, you know, because um, I had taken something and just made it more interesting. But that's, you know, that's what uh-huh. I try and do. I mean, I did that before. I did, there was a, there was a Ninja Turtle show out mm-hmm. of New York. And I tried to do the same thing. They fired me after I turned the board. I, I changed things, but it's like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know? Right. But I'm just trying to, when I work on a show, I try and do the best I can and trying to do what I think will make the show better. Right. And um, in most cases, it worked. Sometimes <laughs> it don't, you know? So right. you live and learn. Because I've, I've always wondered do you know why uh, the Mighty Orbots cartoon just disappeared? I will would be a better authority on that because he he actually got into the nuts and bolts of the financing behind that show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't click, and they had some financing things happening in Japan. But um, it was yeah. It, will would know better than I. Unfortunately, I mm-hmm. I'm I was I'm the guy working in in, in in the trenches, and Will will actually be out there with the generals, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked in Orobots. I worked on Bionic Six. Mm-hmm. Those were, and I did a lot of storyboards on those two shows. Right. But, um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't know exactly why, but he would mm-hmm. know. Because those who like Bionic 6, too, that was another show that, uh, that one lasted for a bit, and it, it was, it didn't look cheap. Like, that was, that looked like it was a fairly pricey production. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, it, it did have budget behind it. They had toys behind So, I think mm-hmm. one of the main things about Bionic 6, because I, I bought some of the toys back at the time that they had. They were pushing toys of all the characters and vehicles yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think they had expectations of like, uh, you know, making ton of money, and mm-hmm. uh, it it didn't click. Yeah. I don't remember um, toys of the Orbots being sold in in the states. So that might have been part of the reason why they had no way to recover, recoup their um, financial investment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because what happens is that you, you know, you're, you're either going to recoup your, your your investment from reruns, or you're going to recoup your investment from the ancillaries, yeah, you know, the toys, mm-hmm. the, the apparel, and stuff like that. So, if you haven't got toys or apparels, you're pretty much stuck with just reruns. And you know, yeah. if the show only lasts for 13 episodes. You can't really make money that way. Yeah, you yeah. got to have at least 26 or 65 to mm-hmm. to, to syndicate. And they only did, I think, right. one season or two. Right. Cause, yep, just one season, yeah. Because the other odd thing with Orbots is it had an ending. Like, usually cartoons didn't do that back then. That's Yeah, you're right. I, I, unfortunately, I don't remember the ending. You'll have to tell me. Cause I, oh. well, they, I don't remember the last episode because that's actually... Uh, Orbots was something I was doing extra. Mm-hmm. That was my night job. <laughs> the second night job. Yes, that was the second night job. So I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the ending was, but um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm getting old, so I don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, because that was, it was, it was just the ideas. As I recall, what had happened was they found plans that they thought were for their replacements, but it was the older designs, and they figured, well, we can show them we're still useful, and they just go to the bad guy's planet and thump on him till he's, like, destroyed. And I thought, nobody else does that. Why does nobody else do that? 
<laughs> no, that's smart. I, I that sounds like that sounds like it, it's it's all in a, um if you can work with people that have forethought, like they know where they're going to go with the series. They know, okay, in episode 13, we're going to do this, or 26. That, you know, we, that's one of the things with the, with the X-Men, with the uh, Johnny Quest, is that we knew what the arc was for the 13th episode. We're going to do this. Right. Okay, second season is going to be sinister and, and, and morph, and he's going to do this. Um, right. So we, we would plot out a 13th episode arc with subplots, and so, mm-hmm. with Orbots, what you're describing sounds like they knew where they were, where they were going to go, mm-hmm. and not leave any uh, dangling participles at the end. Yeah, because after after listening to you talk, I'm kind of sorry you didn't get to do the Legion of Superheroes because the X Men show always looked like the people who did it were fans, and the the Legion when they did that one, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't quite the Legion. Yeah. Like it seemed, they yeah. went more more science fictiony than the actual comic books used to, and it would have been interesting to see with with like I said, the uh, history and obsessiveness you did the X Men, what the Legion of Superheroes would have been like with that. Yeah, if, if I had my druthers, I probably would have done the Legion of Superheroes. But I remember back in the uh, uh, the Jim Shooter days, the sixties, mm-hmm. trying to uh, and go with that version of them and have some fun with it, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, definitely would have been more fun. Yeah, yeah. That you know, because that it's kind of they're kind of like I, I can't say they're the X Men. They're kind of like the X Men. They got a collection of kids. Everyone's mm-hmm. got a single superpower, and um, you, you know, and it's in the thirtieth century, so you have a lot of science fiction stuff you can play with. But it was like, um, I, you know, you could have fun with that if you if you approach it with, I don't know if the word, right word is reverence, <laughs> but respect. Maybe it's just respect. respect. Yeah. Just back yeah. to the source material. Just trying. There's a reason why stuff is successful. And if you're going to work on a show like if I was going to work on Doc Savage or some show like that or Zorro stuff, mm-hmm. I would go and do the research and find out. Okay, why was this thing successful? What made right. it work? And let's do that. Let's adapt that to the film, whatever or or TV show that we're doing. Because I mean, when you mm-hmm. when you take source material and you want to put it into film. There is a slight adaptation you have to to do because film is different from print, but you know just respect the source material and try and uh, you know don't change things because arbitrarily change them for a reason if you have to but don't change it if, just because you want to change it you know yeah you know you know that that's that well, that's would... just me you know. <laughs> right. I would think a lot of them change it just because they want to show their own, you know, creative brilliance. You know, they look, they think that they can do, you know, a better spin on it than the original guys did. Yeah. And and so they're just trying to put their mark on it. Yeah. And see, I, I just find that you, that's not me. It's like, no, you shouldn't do that. You should respect mm. the source material and then adapt it with your style, but just adapt it to it and just, you know. Don't try and say, "Hey, I'm great. Look how much I I changed." It. I mean, I they mm-hmm. I think it was a Frank Miller did the spirit, and he did the oh, awful mm-hmm. version. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh man!" I mean, if the guy was alive, the original guy who did spirit, I mean, he would yeah, he, <laughs> he would have hated that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Will Eisner would not have been happy about that. Yeah. No, no. So it's like, it's, <laughs> you know, just respect. You know. Respect what you're working respect with. Respect the source material. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Yeah, definitely respect the source material. 
we when I was with Stan at uh, Marvel Productions, we uh, we uh, were working with a director who got the right to do the, to do the Punisher back in the uh, 80s. Huh. But when he got the rights to it, he, he didn't like the lead character having a skull on a shirt, so he took the skull <laughs> off. <laughs> but the show was still called Punisher. I was like, oh, why? Why? <laughs> you know. It doesn't work anymore. It's, it's like yeah. there's a movie version of the Punisher where he has the skull on the top of his knife, if I remember right. Oh, yeah. And they, they and so what they do is they keep focusing in on the top of his knife where you have the little skull, and that's it. He's wearing just a black shirt. I think that's the one with Dolph Lundgren playing the Punisher. Yeah, it's like it was standing. You know, I was in a meetings with that, and I was like, why? Why would? Okay, no, no, that that's just what he wanted to do. Um, right. Yeah. If that's what he wants to do, that's what he wants to do. Yeah. Back then. Um. Back then. Back in. An, well, yeah, basically the 80s and 90s, and Marble Management back in New York, they were mainly making worried about making money from licensing. They weren't mm-hmm. into ancillaries like toys and apparel. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to make money licensing their characters out and let someone else right. do it. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it wasn't until, like, the X-Men series and mm-hmm. um, I think it's uh, what's it, Blade, when Blake mm-hmm. came out, suddenly it's like, here are two two shows that we kind of like, we were we're trying to do Marvel shows, we were trying to do Marvel mm-hmm. movies, and we did shows that uh, respected the original characters, mm-hmm. and we kind of showed them, this is what you know, you could you know Marvel, if you guys watch this, I mean this is like the template that you guys, and luckily they did, they ran with it, and that's what they did, they got the funding mm-hmm. to do their first Iron Man from. All you got to do is respect the, the source material and run with it. Mm. There's no reason to. There's a reason why things work. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Don, any any final questions you wanted to ask Larry? Oh no, I think we we covered uh, everything I was hoping to get in and more actually. So. Excellent. I I think so too. So thank you, Larry, for coming on. It's been a fantastic interview. It's been fascinating. Yeah. I'm glad you guys uh, asked me for this. It's been been a pleasure. And, and enjoy, okay. enjoy your much-earned retirement. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do. Every day. Thank you. <laughs> it is nice to just wake up and just do what you want. Oh, I, bet, I bet it is. Well, sir, as I said before, you have absolutely earned mm-hmm. it. And on that note, thank you, everyone, for listening. And please tune in for the next episode when we'll talk about something awesome or interview someone almost as good as Larry. <laughs> talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!